Hello, and welcome to this episode of Engineering a Better World, a society, technology and policy podcast from The House magazine and the Institution of Engineering and Technology. I'm your host, John Elledge. How can technology lead the fight against climate change? In this series from the heart of Westminster, the House magazine and the OET discuss with parliamentarians and industry experts how technology and engineering can provide policy solutions to our changing world. The transport sector currently accounts for around a quarter of the UK's carbon emissions, making it the country's biggest emitter. So, if we're going to hit the government's target of reaching net zero by 2050, we need urgent and decisive action to decarbonise the transport sector. In this podcast, we'll be exploring how government can transform the UK into a hub for green transport technology and innovation, through things like electric vehicles, hydrogen and place-based solutions. We'll start with a panel discussion, but stick around after that because I'll also be interviewing Trudy Harrison, the Parliamentary Undersecretary of State at the Department for Transport. Let's start the show. So, with us today, we have Kerry McCarthy, MP, the Shadow Minister for Green Transport, Professor Phil Blythe, the Vice President of the IET and former Chief Scientific Advisor at the Department of Transport, so very much a man who, who knows what he's talking about on this subject. And last but not least, we have Olivia Carpenter-Lomax, the Chair of the IET's Energy Sector Executive Committee. So, I'm going to start with, with a, fairly, a fairly broad uh, question, just to warm us up. As we record this, we're, we're only uh, a few days after the end of COP26. I'm curious to know what everyone's big takeaways were. Was it a success? Are we going far enough? Tell us about the future of transport. Kerry, I'm sure you have views. Do you want to do you want to give us them? I went up to COP and I was up there for Transport Day. I feel that some progress has been made, but it's pretty far away from where we would ideally like to be. So, you know, I mean, I suppose the thing is... The, starting point wouldn't have been where we actually were as we entered COP. You know, we, I would have liked to have seen a, a lot more progress ahead of that. I'd like to have seen a lot more firmed up before we actually got to Glasgow in terms of international deals. But there is there's progress being making. I think we're, we're, we're now in a place where the technology is there and has been there for quite some time, certainly in terms of road vehicles. And we're coming on sort of gradually and Hopefully that will accelerate in terms of the, the technology for aviation and, and shipping and the heavier road vehicles as well. So I suppose, you know, I feel like it was a bit of a, a mixed bag considering where we thought we would be. It all looked in the, the, the very few days before COP. It looked like I was fairly depressed by you know, the possibility of the whole thing falling apart. So, so I suppose the fact that we, we've got quite a lot of countries signed up now to the 2035 stop on ICE vehicles. We haven't got US, Germany and China on board, but we've got companies and cities and regions within those countries that are on board. So I think I suppose what I would say is we absolutely can't take our foot off the gas now, you know, and we can't, we've got to keep pressing for what wasn't achieved in, in Glasgow to be achieved in you know, the coming weeks and months rather than think that you know job done until next time. Olivia what was your big takeaway from from the conference? I attended the transport day and was also around for for the day before which included innovation and gender and the day after which was about cities and regions and I think there's something to be said for transport for for all of those topics. I think one big takeaway really is that this is really an area where industry is leading kind of beyond governments and if anything, is crying out for the regulations and the rules to push further so that they 
can do what they want to do, which is to innovate in the direction that is, you know, future facing and suitable for, for a net zero. That was a really positive takeaway that I that I had. There was an, another point, really, which is the real need to bear in mind what is needed in other countries around the world, and particularly developing countries, and the lack of real dependable policy and finance means that actually, whilst in developing countries, we can progress quite quickly. If there's any chance of this being a truly global change, we need to put all those supports in place for developing countries to to follow as well. It's interesting what you say about industry driving this, because one of the things that kind of leapt out for me was that a large part of the automotive industry is clearly very involved with the shift to electric cars. But there were a couple of really big holdouts, weren't there? I mean, is it, are there those kind of divides in, in, in other industries that are kind of involved in, in the shift towards net zero? I think there's always going to be a mix of opinions and a mix of vested interests as well. But I think the route to net zero is always going to be a big question. But I, I don't think there's much question that we need to do it. It's just how we get there. And Phil, what did you, what did you make of the big conference? Okay, there were some quite um, quite useful announcements, but I, I think the challenge is that um, no one was really discussing the whole the whole scale of what's needed. The scale of the transition in transport is absolutely massive, and although you've got things like the transport decarbonisation plan and the hydrogen strategy, it's not really looking at the real challenges of those hard to decarbonise parts of the transport network. And when we can do that, what I was heartened about at, at COP was uh, the discussions around um, hydrogen. When I was Chief Scientific Advisor at Department for Transport, I was literally a lone voice saying we need to look at hydrogen for a number of years in the department. Uh, And it was clear that larger road vehicles, buses, HGVs, off-road vehicles, some trains, uh, maritime clearly are going down the hydrogen through ammonia route, and some aviation are going to use hydrogen. So I think what's important is transport doesn't exist in a vacuum. It has to exist in absolute uh, concert with the energy sector. So we understand the energy system, they understand the transport system and our needs so that we, they can deliver for both electric and hydrogen fuels, but also supporting the development of sustainable aviation fuels. I think one of the announcements at COP about small modular reactors being built by a consortium led by Rolls-Royce is quite heartening because I think one of the plans that Rolls-Royce have by this is to dedicate some of those modular reactors for the generation of sustainable aviation fuels that could be pretty close to net zero. I mean, how far off is, is hydrogen as, as a sort of like sustainable solution for those kind of larger transport vehicles you're talking about? Oh, that's a really good question. I mean, in the sense, Olivia hit on it, they need leadership from government. Now, we've been talking about hydrogen in transport, looking at individual applications for a lot of years. And it doesn't stack up economically, nor from a CO2 point of view. But the fact now we've got other sectors, you know, large energy intensive industrial processes, possibly heat, domestic heating and cooking could be using hydrogen. It means we're going to have a hydrogen economy in this country. Hydrogen is quite well advanced overall. We have the world leading companies that make electrolyzers, make some of the storage and make some of the transmission as well as um, fuel cells. What has been lacking is, is leadership from government to say we are going to support hydrogen and therefore you industry and you innovators, you, you now have the confidence to invest in the next generation of electrolyzers and fuel cells. It, it's almost going back to where we were in about 2009 with electromobility, where government decided uh, electric vehicles were the way forward. At the time, one kilowatt hour of lithium ion storage of electricity cost about $1,500. 
But because the industry has had a certainty, they've been able to innovate and bring in efficiencies. And now one kilowatt hour of lithium-ion uh, batteries cost under $200. So you can get a real cost reduction, real improvements in efficiency. And I think the same thing can happen and should happen with hydrogen if, if they get that real leadership from government. And one of the problems is in the hydrogen strategy that was published in August, they made estimates of how much fuel is going to be used in different sectors, including transport. But they're saying they're not going to consolidate those findings for five or six years. And I, I just think we need that leadership now, or we're going to be so far behind everybody else who is also getting on the hydrogen bandwagon now. I feel this is a topic we could we could do um, hours of, of talking about. So I'm going to move us on. It f- felt to me like a lot of the conversation at COP26 on the transport side was specifically about electric vehicles. And there was kind of very little discussion of, of, of modal shift, you know, cycling or public transport or building more high speed rail or whatever it may be. Obviously, this is, a, you know, I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a train nerd of some years standing. But like Kerry, is this a concern for for, for you as well? Yeah, it, it is. Totally. And you know, that, that is, is replicated in the conversations that we, we have in Parliament. I mean, there will be cycling and things like low traffic neighbourhoods and so on. There are discussions about it, but they tend to be sort of standalone and very parochial. You know, people have got particular issues in their own patch. And in terms of the, the overall transport decarbonisation plan, yeah, it is very much on electric cars, actually. So it's even more limited than you say. There's There's still not a clear strategy in terms of HGVs, you know, vans, you know, buses, it's, there's various solutions in the mix, um, whether it's bio, biogas, electric or hydrogen. But the focus is on mostly on cars. And even with that, I'd say there's, there's not a clear enough strategy in terms of rolling out the charging points that you need. There's far too many gaps in the network. The government seems to be withdrawing from support for EVs with the year-on-year cuts to plug-in grants. If you, if you analyse where the, the funding for local authorities for charging points is, you know, it, it's scrappy and a lot of it relies on local authorities actually having the initiative to come forward and bid for it. So I would, I would criticise that. But then, as you, as you say, there, there's so much more that could be done. You know, there's these 4,000 electric buses that were promised. Grant Shapps keeps telling us, and he told us again this morning, uh, he says 900 are in production or on the road, but the bus companies I speak to say that's not the case. But anyway, we don't have the 4,000 electric buses. I'd say on, on hydrogen, you know, there's an issue about blue hydrogen versus green hydrogen. Europe's gone far further ahead in terms of wanting it to be green hydrogen. And yeah, with trains, again, you know, it's there's some good things happening, but it is my impression that it's it's pretty much, you know, it's it's market led with something like the rail network. I, I, just, I just don't see that you're going to be able to get there without a much stronger government steer. On aviation, you've got the Jet Zero Council, which we were very concerned about to start with because it didn't seem to meet them. But I've had more recent discussions with people that are involved in that that think that it's useful but there's all sorts of levers that you could be pushing and pulling to support them on that way. And again, we're not seeing them at the moment. I mean, I'm, I'm curious. I mean, if, if boring things like political reality weren't a factor, what would your vision of, of transport in 50 years time be? Like, how would you imagine the world working? Well, we, I mean, I think one thing that we have to be clear about is that we haven't succeeded if we're just replacing current ICE vehicles on the roads with EVs or, you know, hydrogen equivalents and that. I'd like to see an actual reduction in, not necessarily in car ownership, but it's in the number of miles travelled by car, partly because there's still emissions from 
electric vehicles, but it's also about freeing up that road space for active travel, for priority bus routes. You've got things like e-scooters coming online, e-mopeds and that. We, we don't really use those, those sort of light powered vehicles the way that other European countries do. But if we can encourage that, then you should a whole debate to be had about what your road space is being used for because there's not room for everything and we've seen that like in Bristol with the e-scooter trials there once you've got a critical mass of scooters you, your conversation almost moves away from just having cycle lanes and you know what you do with the, with all the rest of the road so that's the starting point is actually you know fewer road journeys I think we're, at some point we're going to have to grapple with what happens with the decline in revenues from fuel duties as people move to EVs and the fact that we've had the freeze for a decade or so I think so I think road pricing is a conversation that needs to be had but then also you know rail and public transport has absolutely got to be key to it so significant increase in capacity on rail but also getting the freight on off the roads and onto rail again. Phil I mean would you what, what would your kind of vision of the sort of ideal transport network of the future look like? I'd like to see it joined up because I think at national level, we still think of transport in the silos, railroad, air and maritime. And, you know, with the digital connectivity and, and data, I think we can join things up better. So when you build a new railway station upgrade, it makes sure it's future of mobility ready to support automation, to support electromobility and everything else. But the other thing is, I think there's some opportunities to think about what we can do uh, post-COVID. During COVID, many cities um, repurposed road space for walking, cycling, social distancing, micromobility. And I think there's an opportunity to keep that and extend that and try and make it less attractive at times to come into the centre of cities by road. So through demand management and, and, and uh, influencing behaviour and choice, I think is important. And I think part of that in the long term has got to be some form of pay-as-you-drive road pricing, because first of all, the revenue from the road will not be there from fuel taxes and the like, but it, it needs a whole think about how we do that. You, you are not going to solve decarbonisation and net zero by technology alone. Technology helps, it's an enabler, but you need this to get society to change, businesses to change, and people to think about changing their behavior and do things more sustainable. And certainly you can't replace every ICE car by electric car. That, that's not solving the problem at all. Sure, I'm, I'm, I want to talk about behavioral change in a moment, but first be, it, it would be terribly unfair after that not to ask Olivia if, what, what's your vision of the future look like? I think when I'm asked questions like this, I always go back to the fact that I'm convinced that a net zero future should also be desirable and enjoyable and fun. And I think we can get into the habit of thinking of the restrictions and the lack of choice and um, the change we all have to go through. And I think it's it's nice to to think or at least aim for something that is it is positive and desirable. I think that modes of transport that are more active and lower carbon and less impactful should always be the cheapest and most convenient and the most accessible, if at all possible. So at the moment, that can't be said for cycling, for example, because lots of people don't want to cycle on our roads because it's not a pleasant experience. So things like taking that segregation really seriously so that people feel like they can jump on their bikes or their micromobility or whatever it is, and trains as well. It's absolutely bananas that trains are so much more expensive than flying when the impact on the environment is so much less. So, yeah, I think taking very seriously the need to make the better solutions, the less impactful and more desirable um, motor transport, the ones that people want to go through for reasons of desirability and money, as well as for the environment, I think has to be really a really important part of it. 
mean, one of the reasons the focus on electric cars at COP26 kind of stood out for me so much was because we have heard a lot the last few years about how maybe the younger generation now are not going to be as interested in, in driving as a technology for, for all sorts of reasons. And so I wondered if it was sort of focusing on, on, on the past rather than the future. I mean, is there evidence of, of that or is that wishful thinking on my part, Olivia? I think my experience said I was talking to well, talking the workshop with with various car manufacturers a good few years ago when they were saying that they are seeing and fully expecting a move away from individual car ownership. And it feels like it's less of a, a given and less of a status thing to drive and own your own own vehicle and transport as a service and even uh, vehicle sharing schemes are just kind of becoming more and more normal, which is partly a money thing. But it's also a mindset thing. Why would you put a lot of investment in owning a thing that sits in parked stationary outside of your home, outside of your site for the vast majority of the time? It makes more, much more sense to have something that is a service um, that's that's there when you need it and you're not paying for when 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 it's not. So yeah, I think that's a that's a real trend. And of course, it's one of these things that is particularly works particularly well in cities and doesn't work at all in more rural areas. So it's it's definitely not a one size fits all solution either. How well it works in, in British cities remains remains to be seen at this stage. But yes, Phil, what what do you think the role of that kind of um, behavioural and cultural shift is in in kind of decarbonising the transport network? I think it's critical. I think we've we've grown up over the last 30 years to really need a car for many people. You know, we've built lots of -of out-of-town shopping centres, out-of-town retail and places where you work. So there has been that need because it hasn't been satisfied by public transport. We've got to to turn that around and make people in their DNA think public transport is the first choice and I only use the car for some leisure trips and uh, when I cannot get there by uh, some useful and meaningful form of public transport. And that's going to cost money. But that's got to be a sort of traded off with how much are they going to cost us down the line if we don't solve the, um, the climate emergency. You're absolutely right. The cost of public transport in the UK is eye-wateringly more expensive than many other countries. That, that's to some extent due to subsidy and some some extent to how it's, it's run and the governance of it. And that, that, needs to be, that needs to be addressed. But certainly there is evidence that younger people are not owning cars as much. In fact, there's less younger people taking their driving, driving test. And we, we should really capitalise on that. And some of the crazy things I see is, you know, you, you're at school, you get free or discounted um, travel on public transport by your, your local PTE. And as soon as you get to 18, you cut loose. And yet you've got this cohort that have been used the whole life to using public transport. And then they've got to pay the full economic cost that uh, every adult has to pay. And you, you lose so many to the market there. So there's got to be a rethink. And I think that can only be done at the local area where the, the local politicians and local authorities know their market and know, know the public. Mm. I've been holding back on asking this because I'm worried that once I do, that's that's the rest of the podcast, possibly just lost to me ranting. But we are recording this the day the British government has published its integrated rail plan. A lot of people are clearly very um, disappointed by it. Kerry, do you want to kind of give us your take on whether um, whether those in the government benches are, are really giving us the kind of transport network for the future that they, they promised? As you say, um, there's a lot of unhappiness about, and I think you know the answer to the, the question you've just posed is no. There's a lot of broken promises. I've just come from the chamber where there were, you know, for Thursday, normally MPs were already headed back to their constituency, but there were a lot of angry MPs in, in the chamber. 
waiting to give it to Grant Shatz with both barrels. And it's just incredibly disappointing because unless we take rail investment seriously, rather than just these occasional sort of, you know, flagships, I think, as you said, John, what's happened with the eastern leg of HS2 um, is like cutting a cat in half and saying it's okay because you've got two ends but no middle but that's that's kind of point yeah it's got to be it's got to be joined up it's got to be integrated with other forms of public transport you know you've got to have improvements to the station to make sure that they're accessible and so on and if we don't crack rail capacity it's also in the context you know we've just seen in the budget a cut in air passenger duty on domestic flights which we already know is in most cases yeah it would have been far cheaper to have flown to Glasgow than it would have been to have got the, the train so yeah um it's we've, we've absolutely got to have that investment in there it is also fair to say that you know obviously you're in the you're in the shadow cabinet so you come at this from a particular angle i'm kind of curious as to what our what our guests from the iet make of the government's current transport strategy and and whether they think uh, they're going far enough olivia perhaps we go to you i think i i just echo Kerry's comments really it's investment in in trains and and rail transport needs to result in more capacity i think probably a higher capacity more than shorter journey times really we're quite a small country and we need to move around that country effectively in order to keep our economy going and having rail travel that is unpleasant and expensive is not positive for our economy so yeah i i think it's hugely disappointing that it's not taken more seriously and Yes, these promises are being broken. Phil, what's your take on on the government's transport strategy? Well, living in the northeast, we weren't going to benefit that much, I think, from HS2 anyway. But if we're not going to have HS2, which I think is, has you know, it's been on the cards at that part of HS2 for a while, let's make sure that the capacity and the reliability of the networks we have are good. I mean, we have a half hour train service down from Newcastle to London, which is pretty good, but it needs to be made more reliable. So there needs to be more track to deal with difficulties. But it's the east-west links, which are which are dreadful. Newcastle to Liverpool takes just under five hours. It's half the distance from Newcastle to London, but uh, almost double the time. So that, that east-west is really, really important. And uh, the cancellation of some of the projects there, I think, are really significant for business. You talk to Chambers of Commerce in the northeast, and it's that east-west link is the one that they really, really need. That really creates so many um, economic opportunities. So going forward, we are where we are, unfortunately. I think we've got to make sure that we integrate stuff better, that um, railway connections are integrated with other public transport. And and as I say, this future, future mobility ready and that those trains are made more comfortable. You know, we've learned from COVID, let, let provide the data to let people know which carriages have how many people on. So you can make a judgment to catch that train or go to a carriage, which is quite empty. If you still worry about safety issues concerning COVID and the like, and, and really just, just think about it. Rail takes a significant majority of the funding of the DFT in all its forms. And I think it could be done better. I think there's a lot more. I think rail reform will help and the fact there will be a more joined up rail system in the future. But we're a long way off having that 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 world-class rail system. We really want to be the backbone of the economy and the first, first choice of uh, travel for anybody going any distance. We should probably be wrapping up. So I'm just going to ask each of our guests to kind of give us their, you know, what, what would your big asks be from the British government? What are the main things you would like to see them come forward with to, to decarbonise our, our transport? 
transport system over the next couple of years. Phil, let's perhaps stick with you for the moment. We talked about leadership, and I think it's having the leadership and picking winners early, you know, not leaving it for four or five years before deciding whether hydrogen has a role to play and whatever else we want to invest in. I think what, what COP has done is got people excited and galvanised to want to go and make a difference, but they'll only invest if they have that leadership from government. So make that leadership happen now rather than leave it four or five years of gesticulation and make sure the decisions are joined up across government departments. Olivia? That was also pretty much what I was going to pick. So have that leadership and have that leadership to be really consistent and reliable. Leadership's not leadership if it, if, if it can change after the next election. So we need something that investors can rely on and, and that know is going to be consistent. I think the other thing I'd want is to is to really focus on on net zero, and that comes into the hydrogen debate quite strongly. We should be backing solutions that have a place in the 2050 net zero world as, as much as possible. And Kerry, just a couple of sentences on what you really like to see the government come forward with. Yeah, I mean, it's the same as Olivia and Phil said. It, we need a, a more strategic approach. But I think underpinning that is a sort of ideological aversion to intervention, which doesn't work when you're talking about our public transport networks. If you just leave it to the market, it's all going to be horribly fragmented. There's going to be delays. And, you know, obviously businesses, you can't blame them for wanting to go where they're going to recoup their money as soon as possible. So I think we need that. And and the other thing I would say is is work more with local government and evolve to local government where, where you can, because you've got people in the cities that account for about 20 million people, all who are making journeys here, there and ever. And I think the government, with a better dialogue with our, our city leadership, could make more progress towards net zero more quickly. Thank you to all our guests, Olivia Carpenter-Lomax, Professor Phil Blythe and Kerry McCarthy. Thank you. We're now joined by Trudy Harrison, the Conservative MP for Copeland and the Parliamentary Under Secretary of State at the Department of Transport. Hello, Trudy. Thank you for joining us. Thank you. Thanks very much for the invitation. To kick us off, would you would you maybe like to kind of talk us through the, the government's current transport decarbonisation plans? Certainly. When I came into the role September last year, I was very fortunate in many ways, because in July, the department had published its decarbonisation transport plan, which uh, set out the path really to net zero by 2050. It is the biggest piece of work we have ever done to tackle greenhouse gas emissions. It set out a series of actions, of commitments and timings to decarbonise UK transport. And then to top it off, in the year of COP26, I had the honour and privilege of being there on Transport Day as we put more flesh on the bones of you know, some of those plans. And we were delighted to be joined by other countries, other cities and also manufacturers in particular as we agreed things like the zero emission vehicle mandate and other priorities. So that's that's where we are. It's been a really exciting 2021 and 2022 is really focusing on delivery. So what does delivery actually look like? What are the, what are the kind of big things that we'd be expecting to see roll out before, before next Christmas? Well, we've already set out the bold and ambitious target of phasing out the sale of petrol and diesel cars by 2035. And we'll need the associated infrastructure in order to do that. So the reason why that is a priority is because that is where the majority of emissions come from in this country. So that is why we've got that target. 
we're going to introduce a zero emission vehicle mandate, which will require a percentage of manufacturers, new car and van sales to be zero emission each year from 2024. And on charging, we want to make sure that the UK's charging infrastructure meets the, the demands of its users. We want to be able to say that no driveway is no problem. We've got a plethora of funds and support available, whether people want to install charge points at home, at the workplace, for local authorities. We've got projects to install rapid charges on the 117 motorway service areas in England and right across the strategic road network. So obviously, this is you know this is a very big change. It's going to take a while to roll out, as you as you said. The target is I think twenty thirty five. When would we expect for people to start seeing changes on the ground and kind of noticing that the world around them has 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 changed? Well, it's already happening. You just need to look at the roads around you to see the massive increase in cars with a plug attached. One in six cars now has a plug attached. So we're already seeing it. We're already seeing in supermarkets and in public areas that charging infrastructure. We've got about 28,000, just short of 28,000 public charge points now available. And of those, about 4,900 are rapid. So it is already here. It is just a case of accelerating, if I can use a transport word, accelerating that transition from fossil fuel to uh, clean, green energy and transport systems. Um, one of the one of the reasons that's often been given for why why progress has not been quicker on a lot of these kind of green agenda stuff is that the public isn't quite there yet, and and it can be hard to deliver on these things and still win elections, which is obviously something politicians uh, quite like to do when possible. What is it that kind of makes you think the public are now now ready for these major lifestyle changes that that all this implies? Well, I am going to reject that. The premise of that question, um, because I think the public clearly were ready. Yes, we've certainly had early adopters, but I think where you're absolutely right is it's now becoming more mainstream. And I think a really important part of that is people seeing the infrastructure when they visit the local supermarket, people recognising that on the route, they're seeing that there is this charging network developing. You can't help but notice those electric vehicles on the highway network as well. And I think, you know, I've seen amongst my own family and friends, it's not just about sustainability. It's about safety. It's about acceleration. And when you've got events like Extreme E and you've got Formula E as well, then it's really a kind of ambition that sets in with society as well, that being green and clean is also a really cool thing to do. The agenda at COP26, or the government's agenda at COP26 rather, was very much focused on on sort of the private transport piece and the shift to electric cars. And there was a certain amount of criticism that, that public transport wasn't higher up the agenda. How do you how do you respond to that? Well I would say that we're investing three billion pounds in the national bus strategy. We are creating integrated networks with more frequent services and bus lanes, for example. We've got the biggest investment in our rail network, but also with things like the zero emission bus regional areas, we are incentivising public transport to run either on battery electric or through hydrogen. And also, I've just taken on a new role as the cycling and walking minister, that active travel opportunity 
will contribute to all of this as well. You know, we're investing £2 billion in cycling and walking. We are building first hundreds and thousands of miles of segregated cycle lanes with the main aim that half of all journeys in towns and cities will be cycled or walked by 2030. And we've seen about a 46% increase in cycling through the pandemic because the roads have been quieter, but also because people, I think, have appreciated the health benefits of cycling and walking as well. And all these plans sound very exciting. There's obviously quite a big deal. If, they if, don't if just they... sound very exciting, John. They absolutely are exciting. I mean, as a, as a keen walker and cyclist myself, I'm absolutely on board with that. But uh, <laughs> what I was going to ask is, you know, if you do obviously you represent a, a Cumbria constituency, often do you feel transport policy has sometimes been kind of a bit too focused on maybe London and the other cities and not paying enough attention to, to seats like your own? I can't deny that when I came into this job in February 2017, I wanted to change the way Westminster thinks about places like Copeland. I had never really thought that my area was a political priority, and I've always thought it should be. So the levelling up agenda, the way the Prime Minister talks about building back better, and the fact that talent is spread even across this country, but opportunity has not... It is music to my ears and the policies that I'm now able to not just craft but actually deliver as a government minister, I think really will improve the lives and livelihoods of people living in those kind of communities. It's not just about the North, it is about the whole of the UK reaping the benefits of a renaissance in electric vehicles, actually, because, you know, the UK was one of the early adopters of electric vehicles when we think back to the milk float. But also it's about a revolution that's fairer, that's more accessible, that's greener with better jobs and recognising that 25% of adults don't hold driver's licences. So it's also important to make sure we've got that public transport network, active transport, you know, cycling, walking opportunities as well. Trudy Harrison, thank you very much. Thank you, John. Thank you very much indeed. Thanks for listening to Engineering a Better World from The House Magazine and the Institution of Engineering and Technology. You can subscribe on Apple, Google, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcast fix. And do leave a rating review to help others find the show. Our recordist was Rich Jarman. Production and editing on Engineering a Better World was by James Miller and Nick Hilton for Podo. Thanks for listening.